Tonight we're going to read from Mark chapter 8, uh, verse 34 to, uh, through the verse 1 of chapter 9. So if you would like to follow along, you can find that text printed for you in your worship folder. Mark chapter 8, I'll begin at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We're in the middle of a series uh, in Mark's gospel, and tonight we come to uh, perhaps the most significant passage, perhaps in the entire Bible, about what uh, we might call discipleship. In other words, what does it mean to follow after Jesus, to respond to his, invita- his invitation to enter into a new relationship with him. And I think just from a first reading together, it's, it's a pretty radical passage. Jesus really doesn't leave anything to the imagination here. It's full throttle. It's as if Jesus is simply saying to you, if you want to follow me, it requires total commitment. It requires everything that you have and then some. It's him saying to us, you must be willing to die for him, to give up everything for him, and even to be despised and rejected for him. And I think right away, if if you're even remotely listening, I think at least two things, perhaps more, but at least two things stand out right away. The first one is that this sounds totally impossible, and it's not a little scary. As we'll see in a few moments here, that three features in our lives that perhaps make following Jesus very, very difficult, our own safety, our own comfort, and even our own reputation, they're not so easily replaced. They're not easily replaced or exchanged for another purpose for living. So the first is, it just sounds impossible, and it sounds, frankly, rather scary. But the second one is, this sounds authoritarian. It sounds even oppressive, and maybe even to some of us, flat-out abusive. This is an example of what's wrong with the world, is religion like this. And what are we to say, perhaps, to these two kinds of reactions at the very least, what we need to remind ourselves is, is that at the beginning, everything about Christianity hangs on who Jesus is and what you believe about him. That's where you have to start. Whether you're scared by what he says or whether you're threatened by what he says. 
And this is not only true when it comes to working through questions or doubts about him, but even more, and especially when it comes to what it means to follow him. And so a proper understanding of Jesus also necessarily requires us to find a new understanding of discipleship, what it means to follow him. And in order to get that new understanding, I want us to learn three things from this passage. I want us to see the context for this discipleship that Jesus calls us to, then the commitment to it, and lastly, we'll finish on the hope of this discipleship. So we'll look at the context for it, the commitment to it, and finish with the hope of it. So first, let's look together at the context. Uh, Briefly, if you were here last week, we, we spent our time looking at Jesus teaching his disciples about who he really was. In verse 31, earlier in chapter 8, Jesus says to them, after Peter has confessed that he is the Christ, Jesus says, the Son of Man, referring to himself, must suffer many things. And as we looked at last week, if you remember, if not, this is for you to sort of uh, maybe pique your curiosity about what we did last week. Jesus redefines messiahship. He redefines what it is to be the Christ, the anointed one, the one that God would send to make everything right. He redefines it and he refers to himself in this phrase of the son of man must suffer many things. And what I want you to see about the context for discipleship is if we don't get his identity right, what he calls you to will never take with you. Because if you understand who he is as the king, a suffering king, but a king, and a king who is willing to suffer for you, those two ingredients are what make his call to follow him possible for us. And I want to show you why. First of all, think about it this way. Let's focus on the idea of Jesus as the king. How do you approach a king? If Jesus is the king, there is really only one way to follow him. You don't come to a king negotiating the terms. See, the only way to come to a king is to lay down your weapons, to lay down your desires, to lay down your ambitions, and even your very own identity. The only way to come to a king is as a servant. To yield yourself to this king. And what Jesus is saying to us here is he's saying, I am the king and you can't use a king for your own ends. I am not a means of your personal fulfillment. Whatever that might be. He comes to us and he says, I am the king. I am the one king who can make this claim on your life. And so there's only one way to come to me. But not only does Jesus tell us that he is the king, he also tells us he's a suffering king. And in that truth, we find that there is only one reason why you must follow Jesus. As the king, Jesus demands absolute loyalty in a way that is unlike any other king. He doesn't come to you and say, serve me. What we learn about Jesus 
as a suffering king is he did not come to be served, but to serve. As we'll find later in Mark chapter 10, Mark writes, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Or Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, tells us that Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Or Peter, in his first letter, tells us Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, the context for discipleship is a suffering king. A king who came to suffer for his people. So when Jesus makes this invitation, he calls you to follow him, to deny yourself, to take up your cross and follow him. That's coming from a king who has already traveled that road for you. Whatever you may face in following him, he's already done it. He's your captain. He is the captain of your salvation. Therefore, what does this mean? This means that you can submit to him out of love and trust. This is not a tyrannical king. This is not a king who's trying to scare you. This is a king who's calling you to new life in him. So do you see, at least at the very beginning here, we need to remind ourselves again, the context for this discipleship is in communion with, in relationship with Jesus, the Son of Man, who must suffer many things. It's as if Jesus is saying to us, I am a king, but I'm a king that's going to a cross. And if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross too. Which brings us to the commitment to discipleship. Look in verse 34. Here Jesus says, calling the crowd to him, which is a cue to us to say that what he has now to say isn't specifically or even exclusively just for the disciples, but it's for anybody. He says, calling the, the crowd to himself with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, and take up his cross, and follow me. In short, this invitation that Jesus gives here essentially means giving up all control of your life and entrusting yourself to him. It's an absolute claim. Absolutely every part of your life, Jesus is saying, you must hand it over to me. Now, what does it mean when Jesus says this to us? To deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow him or to lose our life for the gospel in order to save it. I think the answer is found when we notice that in verses 35 to 37, four times we read the word there, life or soul. It's the same Greek word that's translated life or soul. And it it denotes your identity, who you are, the very core of your being, your personhood, who you are at the core of your existence. And it's important for us to to notice that because when Jesus says here, 
in verse 34, to deny yourself. Usually, I think, when we hear that, what we think is we we need to deny ourselves certain creature comforts or certain uh, things in life that, good though they may be, we we shouldn't entertain those or be involved in those things. We should uh, give ourselves to other uh, initiatives or priorities or values. But I think Jesus is saying something far more trenchant, far deeper than that. He is not saying that he's not calling you to simply deny yourself certain creature comforts. It's what he is telling you to do. He is telling you to deny your very self. He is calling you to deny who you are at the core of your being. It is a radical call to follow him. That to follow him means you have to die and be remade after his image. As one writer puts it, what Jesus calls for here is a radical abandonment of one's own identity and self-determination. And with it, a call to follow Jesus, even to death. Now, such a call like that exposes, I think, for us an internal conflict that we need to allow Jesus to draw out of us. And he does it in verses 34 and 38, or 35 to 38, in a couple ways that I, I just want to point out. The first one is I want you to notice the irony here. When Jesus says, For whoever, in verse 35, would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There's an irony that losing is how you save your life. If you try to save it, you'll lose it. Or take verse 36 and 37. You could acquire all that the world has to offer and still lose your soul. In other words, there is nothing in the created world that can make you safe, ultimately speaking. All of it can be lost. No matter how hard you work, no matter how much money you make, no matter how much gain you achieve, Jesus is saying, what does it profit you to gain the whole world and yet lose your soul? Verse 37 actually says, what can a man give in return for his soul? Essentially, what he says there is, I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how much you have. I don't care how much people like you. I don't care what's on your resume. You cannot afford your soul. You can't secure it. I am the only one who can do that. And you can only do that by losing your life. By dying. Will you find life in me? But the second one is not just the irony, but the second part of this internal conflict that he draws out for us is this conflict is is really over building our identity on something other than Jesus. In verses 35 to 38, listen again here. Jesus in verse 35 talks about saving your life. Think of it this way. What does that mean? He's talking about safety. 
wanting to be safe, wanting to be secure. That's a good thing. But if you build your identity on that, you will lose it. Or take verse 36 and 37, where he talks about profit. What can a man gain? Several times in in these two verses, he uses economic terms like profit or gain or give or exchange. What's he talking about there? He's talking about comfort. Using your abilities or your resources to acquire in order to get comfort. It's a good thing. Nothing wrong with that in and of itself. But when it becomes what we build our identity on, we lose it. Or take verse 38, where Jesus says, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed. This is your reputation. If you're living for your reputation, you will lose it. Jesus here is drawing out for us this internal conflict. And his point is simply this, that building your identity on anything other than him will result in losing what you think you are trying to secure. Now, what's the way forward in the midst of this commitment to discipleship? The way forward really does require an entirely new approach for thinking about your life and who you really are. Now, what is that approach? Jesus gives you the answer in verse 35 when he says this, whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels. This must become the center of your existence. Jesus and his good news. Or as we read earlier in Psalm 63, His love must become better than life to you. There in that psalm, the writer describes that God's everlasting love is better than life. Here, Jesus, an entire new approach to your life is simply this, that only Jesus can bear the weight of your trust. Nothing else can do that. Not money, not career, not romance, not family, nothing. How does this work? Let me try to give it to you as, as in a most, the pithiest, most succinct way I can. Here's how this works. Instead of building our identity, you must receive your identity. Let me say it again. How does it work that you begin to approach your life entirely differently? The way it works is that you have to begin, instead of building your own identity, you must receive your identity. As I was thinking about this, I came across a, a quote that I had read some time ago. It goes like this. One search for, one's search for self ultimately is fruitless. Because it seeks to find that which can only be given by another. In short, we may seek self-identity and hope to find ourselves, but the hoped-for result never occurs through our own efforts. We seek ourselves but are finally found 
One's identity is the gift of another's love. That's what Jesus is saying here. When you lose your life, you save it for my sake and the gospel's. C.S. Lewis says similar in a similar way, but different in a way that I think it's worth uh, reading to you. He puts it like this. The more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way and let Jesus take over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are all waiting for us in Him. The more I resist Him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surrounding and natural desires. It is when I turn to Christ, when I give myself up to His personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality of my own. But, you must not go to Him for the sake of that. As long as your own personality or your own identity is what you are bothering about, you are not going to him at all. The very first step is to try to forget about the self altogether. Your real, new self will not come along as you are looking for it. It will come when you're looking for him. So you see, Jesus says to us, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's We'll save it. Now, this call to deny ourselves and follow after Jesus, it cuts across every aspect of your life. And if you're anything like me, I spend much of my time trying to hold that off, trying to keep Jesus from cutting across every aspect of my life. But the truth is that no part of your life can remain untouched by this Jesus. It sounds impossible, and in fact, it is impossible, which is why we need to add to the context of commitment, the context and commitment of discipleship. I want us to look at the hope of it. The hope of discipleship really comes out in chapter 9, verse 1, when Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. This verse here is, uh, it has caused commentators and Bible students trouble for quite some time, and there are various interpretations of it. But I think I, I want to show you, at least what I find the most convincing about how to understand this, that this, this verse here, it's a contrast to what we've already seen. Remember, the previous several verses have been talking about Jesus as a suffering king and what it means to follow him. It's weakness. It's suffering. It's dying. But here Jesus gives us a promise that some standing right there with him that day, listening to him, his original audience, would not die before they saw the power of the kingdom, the hope of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom come. So what's he talking about here? Is he talking about the very end of history when Jesus comes back at the end of time? I I don't think so. Because the entire context here begins with Jesus talking about his death and his resurrection. 
I think what he's talking about here and pointing to what the, the hope of discipleship is his resurrection from the dead. That if you follow him, you are following after someone who has the power over life and death. Whatever you may go through, whatever your experiences are of self-denial and bearing your own cross, you are on the path with a Savior who has died and he has risen. No matter where that path of discipleship takes you, there is hope. There is resurrection life. And Jesus here is teaching us in this promise that there is hope. And there is actually no more important place for us to apply this hope of the resurrection, the coming power of the kingdom, than to our own shame. To our own shame. In verse 38, there's some very sober words where Jesus tells us, whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, I will be ashamed of him. It is a reminder and a warning to ask yourself the question, what do you really think about Jesus? You see, shame here in verse 38 is it's very different in many ways than the, the safety and the comfort we talked about earlier. Because here, this kind of shame, and, and shame is multifaceted. There, I'm not trying to reduce it to one thing. But in this instance, shame, unlike the safety and the comfort that we talked about earlier, it's directed directly at Jesus. Notice what he says. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you need to ask yourself, are you ashamed of Jesus and his words? Or another way to put it is, is your reputation more important to you than Jesus and the promises he makes to you. What's happening here in this, in this part of the story, when Jesus says this, he's asked, asking the question, are you okay being associated with me? Are your allegiances with me? Or are you ashamed to be associated with me? I'm a suffering king. I'm not like any other king you've ever seen. A way to think about this is an example I came across of if you have an older sibling with a bad reputation and you now attend the school that where that, that reputation was established, you're probably going to try to hide your family connection, your association with that sibling. But when someone does make the connection, what happens you immediately feel the shame of being associated with your sibling and his or her behavior. Here's what Jesus is is drawing out about us when it comes to shame. That we turn from those we think will damage our reputation and we turn toward those that we think will enhance it. Have you ever felt that way toward Jesus? If you have, it's worth pausing and asking why. And I, I don't ask you that to um, uh, heap 
coals onto you or something. I'm asking you that because Jesus is asking you that. Are you ashamed of me? Why are you ashamed of me? Let me take that away. You see, the hope of discipleship really does lie in the shame of Jesus for us. See, in modern culture, the cross really has lost some of its power as a symbol. It's often it's a commonplace in jewelry. Uh, it's, it's lost a lot of its significance uh, from the first century. But in the first century, it was intended to dehumanize. It was a symbol of shame. It was a symbol of rejection, of isolation. It was the symbol of forsakenness, of forgottenness, of essentially non-existence. But I want you to listen. What do the scriptures say about Jesus and the shame of the cross? In Hebrews chapter 2, we're told that Jesus endured the cross despising the shame. Now, think about that. He endured the cross despising the shame. Now, despise in that context, it can be translated to look down upon or to be unconcerned about or to give no mind to, to pay it no attention. One writer describes what's happening in that passage like this. Jesus absorbed the shame of the world and despised it by never being controlled by it. Jesus looked down on shame. He attributed no worth or influence to it. He treated it as an outcast. Shame never distracted him from his mission. It simply was not an issue. With the Son of God, certain of his connection with the Father, shame, for the first time in history, had lost its power. Do you see that? That on the cross, when Jesus endured the cross and despised its shame, you know what that means? In Jesus, shame can lose its power in your life. When you are connected to him, there is a path out of your shame. And I have to tell you that we talk a lot about how the cross saves you from guilt. It's forgiveness. But it even goes deeper than that. Do you know that you can be told that you're forgiven and really maybe believe that you are forgiven, but be plagued with shame? That's so deep you can't even talk about it. And on the cross, for the first time in history, shame is shown to be powerless. And you can experience that in communion with Jesus. Are you ashamed of Jesus? Do you find it hard to give yourself to him? Let me just remind you again. Who are we talking about? We're talking about a suffering king who endured the, who endured the cross bearing your shame so that as you commune with him, you begin to experience that grip loosen and experience the identity that he alone can give you. Let me finish just by, again, referring to this 
uh, next section in, in C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, where I, it's hard for me to imagine putting it much better than this, where he says this. Give up yourself, and you will find your real self. Lose your life, and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will be, yours, will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. Let's pray. Father, we, we pray that you would help us by grace to lose our lives in order that we might save them for Jesus' sake, for his gospel. Father, we pray that you would loosen uh, the hold that our hearts have on our own safety, our own comfort, and, and our own reputations. We pray that in Jesus we would find a king to follow, to serve, to yield our entire lives to, not because we have to, but because he's beautiful, because he has loved us by laying down his own life and giving his life as a ransom for many. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.